Cole. I'm on staff over at Cornerstone Church. I do some college ministry out there with the Salt Company. Uh, and I'm not here alone. My beautiful wife is here as well. She sits over here to my right, your guys' left. Her name is Trisha. Yep, we can clap for her. Love my baby, love my baby. Um, man, thank you guys to your pastors, Matt and Josh, once again for this opportunity, your elders as well. Man, I really uh, appreciate you guys and giving me the opportunity to come over here and teach. If you guys have your Bibles, we're going to be in Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13, uh, begin there in chapter 1. You know, I, the way this works, you know, I don't know if they've kind of started doing this on purpose, but I seem like every time I come here, Sometimes my sermons at Stonebridge are like some of the most difficult things I've ever had to preach <laughs> before. And so I'm starting to catch on. Matt, Josh, I don't know if you're in here, but it starts to, it's starting to seem like it's, it's, it's not an accident. It's kind of on purpose, right? And so I, I want to get that out there. But no, that's, that's not actually how it works. Uh, Stacy, she actually emails me and says, hey, do you want to come over and teach? And I'm like, yeah, I'd love to come over and teach, right? She's like, okay, here's a list of some of the dates, some of the... Uh, the passages we're going to be going through here soon. Take a look on what you want to do. And I crack open my Bible, take a look at the list, and I'm looking around, and I'm like, oh, like, this one, this one looks cool, right? Luke chapter 13, if you guys have a CSB Bible or ESV Bible, the, the title to that text is Repent or Perish. And I, you know, months ago, look at Repent or Perish, I'm like, oh, this would be fun to teach at some point, right? <laughs> Until it's time to start preparing for the text. And I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute, I, I, shouldn't, have, I shouldn't have picked this one, <laughs> You know, but here we are, and we're going to be in Luke chapter 13, and we're going to be dealing with this really, really difficult text of what it means to repent and what it looks like to repent. In a lot of our Bibles, we have the CSB and the ESV Bible, and like I said, like the, 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 the chapter title there, that beginning chapter title is Repent or Perish. But as I was studying this text and looking through and beginning to prepare what I was going to say, um, I started to lean away, actually, from this concept and idea of repent or perish. Some translations use a call to repentance, <laughs> a call to repentance, right? Not necessarily repent or perish. Repent or perish lends itself to this idea that, man, this, this call to repent is damnable. But I think all throughout Scripture, when you see the idea of repentance, what you see is not really this idea to condemn people or to banish people in the damnation, but no, it's, it's, a, it's an opportunity for God to offer grace. And so it's a call. It's a call to repentance. And if I can give this sermon a title, it would be this, The Repentance Requirement. And as I go through this, I'm going to give you guys a map and give you guys an understanding of where I'm going to be in this text. I have a, a couple questions I want to answer as we go through, the first question is going to be this, really simple. What is repentance? The second question, who needs to repent? And we'll see that as we jump into the beginning of the text here. And the third question is, what is the cause of a repentant heart? What is the cause of a repentant heart? If you have your Bibles open, we're going to begin reading here in chapter 13, verse 1. And it says this, at that time... Some people came and reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with the sacrifices. And he responded to them, do you think that these Galileans were more sinful than all the other Galileans because they suffered these things? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. Or those 18 that the tower in Siloam fell on and killed, do you think they were more sinful than all the other people who live in Jerusalem? 
Again, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. Verse 6, and then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree that was planted in his vineyard. He came looking for fruit on it and found none. He told the vineyard worker, listen, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any, so cut it down. Why should it even waste the soil? But he replied to him, sir, leave it just this year also until I dig around it and I fertilize it, and perhaps next year it will produce fruit. But if not, then you can cut it down. So I want to begin uh, by answering the question, what is repentance? If you've been in church for any amount of time, you've probably heard this word. If you've, if, if, if you've come here, you haven't placed your faith in Christ, like you've heard of what repentance is and what it may mean. But if I can give it a definition, a definition I like to use for repentance is this. Repentance is the turning away from sin, idolatry, and rebellion, and the turning toward God in faith. It's a turning away from something and then turning towards a completely different thing. And even if you haven't been church for a long time, we all understand this concept to some degree or another, right? Like take, for instance, if you're, if you're driving around and you guys get a little hungry, you guys have that experience, which I'm not the only one. And I'm looking around and I see one of my favorite restaurants and it's got one of those golden arches, right? The McDonald's arches. I know I like the dog on McDonald's, y'all, but y'all can keep it real with me this morning, all right? Listen, you're driving around, you're getting hungry, you see this restaurant, and you're thinking, man, if I could just go in and grab one of my favorite burgers and get the fries and get the large drink, right? Like, like, like this is really what I want. But you and I know that that kind of food isn't really good for us, right? But we tend to want to do those things anyway, we want to go there. And say you do, say you hop in the line, you get in the line, and you're thinking, you know, and McDonald's always has this ridiculously long line, right? I don't know if that's true here in Boone, but it's true over in Ames. But you go sit in that line, and you have plenty of time to think about it, right? You have plenty of time to think about it. Like, I could actually turn around and leave, or I can sit here and wait in this line and do this thing. You see, what repentance tells us is that we actually take into account this reality, and we do turn. We leave the line. We come out of the parking lot, and we drive back to our own homes, Right? And what happens when we get to our homes? Do we go to the refrigerator, get the frozen fries, and put like cheddar cheese and bacon and, and, and sour cream on top and eat that? Like, no. You go home and, and you grab the, the tuna you don't like in the back of the cupboard, right? You make yourself a tuna sandwich. Or you grab some salad. You see, it's like this thing, this, this concept of repentance is not only turning away from something, but it's turning away from something towards something else that is completely different. And mainly in the Christian life, it's turning away from sin and idolatry and rebellion and turning toward God in faith. This is repentance, not just a turning away from sin, but a turning toward God. It's the most consistent biblical message. We see it all throughout the Old Testament. We see it into the, the Gospels and we see it into the epistles of Paul. In the Old Testament, we see David's repentance, right? We know the story of David, and we know his story as he rises to be king of Israel. And while he's king, we tend to look at the David story. Remember David, the young shepherd boy, growing up and to be king, and David slaying Goliath, all of those good stories about David. But then when David gets to be king, he lets his kingdom, his kingship, 
overrun his character, doesn't he? And so what he does, he finds himself committing adultery. And because he commits adultery, he has to find the husband of Bathsheba, who he committed adultery with, send him to the front lines and get him killed. And here David is, king of Israel, man after God's own heart, set apart by God, committing some of the most evil acts that you and I could potentially think of. And in Psalm 51, David opens up his mouth. He falls flat on his face, falls to his knees, and he opens up his heart in repentance, begging God to forgive him. And the same thing is true about Jonah. We read about Jonah. We all know the Jonah story, right? Jonah is one of the prophets in the Old Testament, and he's a really unique prophet. The book tells us about a story of this, of this God named Jonah, and in most of the prophets, what we get to see is the words of the prophet. But in Jonah, it's really unique because it gives us the life of the prophet. And the life of Jonah is the prophetic word that speaks to us in the text. He gets this word of God to go to Nineveh and preach the gospel and have that nation repent. And he says, I don't want to go do that. And so what God does is he sends a whale to swallow Jonah. And when this whale swallows Jonah, Jonah begins to meet himself in that whale doesn't he? And he repents. Oh my God, you have now taken me down to Sheol, and yet you were there with me, and you have saved me. He begins to open up his heart and repent from his wrongdoing. Isaiah was the same way. I love the book of Isaiah. We named our son after him. He was a man already speaking on God's behalf. You get the first several chapters of Isaiah, one through five, and he's speaking against the people of Israel because they've now given themselves over to a lot of the things that the nations were giving themselves over to. The very same things, the nation of Israel should have been a light to the other people. They were beginning to do themselves. And so Isaiah rises up and he begins to speak a prophetic word against his own people. And then in chapter 6, he gets this vision from God. And he finds himself in this holy throne room, doesn't he? And what does he say? God, you better get your people. <laughs> no, he doesn't say that. He says, whoa, woe is me. I am totally undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. This is a man who was already a mouthpiece for God and was speaking God-like things to the people of Israel. And yet here he is saying and repenting and confessing that, yo, even me, I am a man of unclean lips. And you see in his heart, he's turning, he's turning away, he's finally realizing. Repentance is a common theme that happens in the Gospels. It's the first thing that John the Baptist says when he comes on this scene. He's like, yo, repent and believe. And when Jesus comes on the scene, he gets baptized by John the Baptist and he begins his ministry and he says, yo, repent and believe. And even in the epistles, the apostle Paul, he takes this to the next level and he calls everyone in his churches to repent as well. It's the most consistent biblical message. And every example of repentance in scripture follows a pattern, I believe. Number one, we have to recognize our sin. Number two, we have to recognize our need for restoration. And number three, we have to recognize our call to obedience. When we recognize our sin, we recognize our brokenness in ourselves and before God. When we recognize our need for restoration, we recognize our need for reconciliation with God. 
The brokenness cannot be bridged by ourselves. God has to come in and we have to be reconciled with him. We have to recognize our call to obedience. We have to recognize our responsibility to step into our new name. Y'all, when you believe and repent and you place your face in Jesus Christ, he calls you something entirely different than you were called once before. And when he calls you something different than what he called you once before, now we have the responsibility of actually walking that out. We have to step into the new name that God has now given us. And time and time again over Scripture, this is what we see of the forefathers. This is what we see of the disciples. This is what we see of Paul himself. This is what we have to embody as well as Christians. There's a continuity to repentance. The great reformer Martin Luther has a quote. He says this, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. In other words, repentance in the life of the believer continues because we are still burdened by the desires of the flesh. And we will be until we are finally glorified. <laughs> that is, until we are entirely made who we were made to be at the end of the age when Jesus comes back. We will still be in this wrestle. And we will still have to continue to turn and repent. Young people, have you ever, like, looked at the mentors around you, maybe some of your parents, maybe it's your grandparents, and you have this question on your mind, and you're thinking, you know, how are they just so holy? <laughs> you know, I had mentors in my life. My grandmother, she's a prayer warrior, right? And I think I talked about it here before, but I remember just being in a house in East Orange, New Jersey. We'd be down in the basement. She'd wake up, and you'd just hear her. She's heavy-footed, stomping around upstairs. And she'd get down on her knees and she would just start praying. And you would hear echoes of prayer coming down the stairs and seeping through the floors, right? And you're just like, you know, at the time, it's like, Grandma, chill, I'm trying to, I'm trying to sleep, right? It ain't noon yet. <laughs> I'm trying to sleep. But that just oozed out of her. That's who she was. She was transformed by God and she was acting accordingly. Have you ever had that question? Have you ever asked, yo, how are some of the people around you, young people, so holy? How do they read their Bibles every single day? How do they pray for you? How do they reach out to you so consistently? I remember I reached out to one of my mentors before, and I asked him this very question. I was like, yo, how long was it before you stopped struggling with the things that I find myself struggling with every single day? How long was it? You know what his response was? He was 70-something years old, and he said, I am kept only by the Lord day by day. <laughs> he said he was kept only by the Lord day by day. <laughs> and so to put you at ease, like, like, yo, there's no magic formula for overcoming sin in our lives. There's no magic formula to battling temptation, except to lean in the good graces of God. And let me tell you, you'll have to lean, just like my mentor told me, day after day. What he was trying to say is that temptation really never goes away. The desires of the flesh are a given on this side of eternity. But with the renewed heart, by the grace of God, we walk in a manner of repentance before God and before man. 
turning and turning and turning, right? As a way of saying, yes, I may be affected by this life, but no, I am not captive to this life. And this is what the Spirit provokes in a repentant person. 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us this, that therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. So why is this so important? Recognizing our need to repent allows us to rightly see ourselves as a humble creation created by a sovereign creator. And we'll see how this plays out more as we dive back into the text. Look at verse 1 with me again, if you have it. It says this, at that time, some people came and reported to him, talking about Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with other sacrifices, with their sacrifices. And he responded to them, do you think that these Galileans were more sinful than all the other Galileans because they suffered these things? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. Or those 18 that the tower in Siloam fell on and killed, do you think that they were more sinful than all the other people who live in Jerusalem? And again, it says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. There's a couple things I want to point out from this portion of the text right here. There's two stories that we see. And these two stories kind of pop up as, uh, we can think of them as these headlines that are popping up in the media. Or these headlines that pop up in the newspaper for some of our old heads in here, right? There's these headlines, and they're coming to Jesus. This group of people come to Jesus, and they say, hey, this thing just happened. These Galileans, we don't know too much about this story, but we can, we, can, we can conclude that maybe they were going up to Jerusalem and they were doing their sacrifices. And what Pilate does is he orders for them to be killed. And as they're sacrificing uh, their sacrifices, they get killed and their blood actually gets mixed in with the blood of the lamb. And so they're coming to Jesus and they're saying, Jesus, don't you know about this? Haven't you heard about this? Haven't you seen this? And the way they're coming to Jesus really is in a way of saying, hey, we're concerned about these people who just got killed. The way the, the, way the Jewish mind paradigm worked back then is something must have been wrong in these people's lives. These guys must have sinned in some way that caused them to be treated like this. And so they confront Jesus and they say, yo, do you remember those Galileans? who got killed by Pontius Pilate. And their blood mixed in with the sacrifices. And before they can even get a full thought out, Jesus says, do you think that those Galileans were more sinful than all the other Galileans because they suffered these things? It's a rhetorical question. He already knows the answer. I think it's really funny that Jesus doesn't actually go into the, 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 the conversation. He doesn't say, no, they're actually not worse. They're not bad. He doesn't go in and say that. But he wants to do something else. He wants to get somewhere else. He wants to get to their heart. He wants to find out, yo, what do you think? What do you think about you? See, we can kind of relate to this. Several years ago, September 11th happened. 2001, some planes crashed into a World Trade Center. Almost 3,000 people died in that incident between the Pentagon and the World Trade Centers. And I remember in that time there were people, there were 
evangelical leaders that would come on TV and write articles that were trying to make the point that what happened that day on September 11th was because of God's anger towards America. There was something sinful in us. Yes, that was true. <laughs> but they were trying to make the point that something particularly sinful in us for this particular event to happen. Have you ever thought that way about something in your life? Have you ever tried to cast blame on the victims? I just think about the last few years and the racial tensions that we came through. And so many of my conversations with people have come around the, the idea of, hey, well, what were they doing? Where were they at? Did they have this? Did they obey? Did they run? All these sorts of things. And the blame was cast on the victims. Whatever happened, I know this, it wasn't worthy of taking a life. But we can often cast that blame, can't we? We can look and see, hey, there must have been something going on. There must have been something in their life. They must have deserved it. We try to do this, right, all of us, in some way, form, or fashion. We do this to try to make sense of our surroundings and experience. But what we're really trying to do is draw a line between the goodness that's in here in our own hearts and the evil that's out there in someone else's heart. And Jesus, he comes on the scene and he says there's something entirely different. He says, that doesn't even exist. You need a new paradigm. You need a new way of thinking. Yes, sin exists, and yes, sin is evil, but these people aren't more sinful than you. We have to see ourselves in the same camp if we're going to rightly understand what it means to repent. Were these people, this people group, were these students and faculty more sinful or worse offenders than anyone else? We see Jesus in this text makes at least two things clear. One of those things is this. We shouldn't assume that the victims of tragedies are being judged for their great evil. This is the great temptation that we have to assign sudden and explainable deaths to the judgment of God, right? Whether it's response to secret or open sin, we want to find a thing that we can say, hey, they deserved this particular fate. And as we do that, we're, we're being the judge. We're casting vengeance on people in the name of saying, hey, you deserved what was coming to you. Meanwhile, we're not recognizing the very thing that we also deserve. Whether it's a man-made tragedy like Pilate's slaughter of the Galileans or a natural cause tragedy like the fall of the Tower in Siloam, it is wrong to assume that the victims are somehow worse sinners than everyone else and thus deserve to die. And the second thing Jesus makes clear is this, the question about who needs to repent. The answer is this, everyone needs to repent. Rather than assigning the wickedness to those who were killed, we need to examine our own hearts. And so the point is this, right? Biblical repentance transcends our worldly understanding of good and bad. And being killed or not being killed is not a measure of a person's righteousness or unrighteousness. Anyone can be killed. But it's only God's grace that causes anyone to live. 
See, in each of his, ver- in each of his arguments in verses 3 and 5, he addresses the false narratives that righteousness brings you prosperity and life and unrighteousness brings you suffering and death. And he says, unless you repent, you too will perish just like the Galileans. Unless you repent, you too will perish just like those whom the tower fell on in Siloam. But it won't just be Pilate and his action against you. It won't just be this huge, heavy object falling on you, but it will be something that takes you out, not for just this life, but for eternity. You see, death is a common denominator for everyone, the righteous and the righteous and the unrighteous alike. There's no difference between those who die in tragic death or sacrificial death or honorable death or dignified death or death by old age. Death is death, but repentance brings life. See, when we witness or read of a tragedy that happens in the headlines, we're tempted to assign guilt to the victim as if they had received God's judgment. But Jesus calls something completely different. He says, look to the sin that's within your own heart. Look to the sin within, right? He says, take the headline, not as a license to accuse, but as a warning to repent. The sudden death of someone should not be an occasion for blame, but an occasion for self-examination. And to drive this point home, next Jesus tells us about a parable of a fig tree. Look at verse 6. It says this. And he told this parable, a man had a fig tree that was planted in his vineyard. He came looking for fruit on it and found none. And he told the vineyard worker, listen, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any, so cut it down. Why should it even waste the soil? But he replied to him, sir, leave it this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it, and perhaps it will produce fruit next year. But if not, then you can cut it down. See, this is a parable, and it's a parable of people living an unrepentant and unfruitful life, even in Jesus Christ. We look through the text, and we have a couple clear figures here. We have a vineyard owner, we have a vine dresser, and we have the fig tree. The vineyard owner represents God. The vine dresser represents Jesus Christ, and the fig tree represents us, and it can also represent the people of Israel. And in this text, we see something, that there's this Vineyard that had been planted, the owner goes and plants his vineyard, and he hires someone to care for the vineyard. And he comes back to the vineyard expecting that the, the, the tree that he planted, that there would be fruit on it. And obviously, we see here in the text that there's no fruit. You see, we have to look back at the Old Testament to understand what's actually going on here. In Leviticus 19, when Moses is, is telling the, the people of Israel about the law for when they get to go into the promised land. God makes this law that says when you go into the land and you plant a tree, don't take anything from it for three years. And then on the fourth year, once the fruit comes back, you take that fruit and you can take it, but you consecrate it. You give it to me. as holy for that entire year. And so what does that mean? The owner can't even benefit from his own produce until the fifth year. 
And this is what the, the people hearing this would have known about. So they would have known that this wasn't just a three-year time period. The owner says, yo, I've come back for three straight years. This wasn't just one, two, three years of the plant being planted. No, this was at least five years after the fifth, the sixth, and the seventh year. He's coming back looking for the fruit. He says, listen, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any, so cut it down. He had every single right to cut down the fig tree for not bearing fruit when it should have been bearing fruit. But listen to what the vine dresser says. He says, sir, if I can appeal to you, just leave it here for one more year until I dig around it, until I fertilize it. This word fertilize, it's it's in other translations, it's translated as manure, right? Some of you in here are, are farmers and, and you work with that kind of lifestyle. I'm not from Iowa. I'm not from the country. I don't know anything about farming, I don't know anything about fields. I'm from Kansas City. But when I came to Iowa for my basketball scholarship, went to University of Iowa, I remember there was this super distinct smell that would just like come up every once in a while when I was walking around campus and I was super confused, like, yo, is this like sewage? Is this, you know, is, 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 is it me? Like, like, what, like, what is going on? But it was this smell of fertilizer. And if it's not for that fertilizer, even though it has this stench to it, this fertilizer is super usable. You spread it over the fields. It operates as a growth hormone for the plants, right, to produce the produce, to produce the fruit that's needed in its due time. For you Iowans, it's that good old corn and soybeans, right? Delicious. But he's saying here, listen, this, this thing, we can even take this as, yo, this, this, this manure. Jesus is saying, yo, let me work on you a little bit. Let me dig around you a little bit. Let me fertilize you a little bit. And y'all, y'all don't have to raise your hand, but, but we all know that the times that Jesus works on us, oftentimes it's not pretty. Oftentimes it hurts. Oftentimes it stinks, for lack of a better word, right? We don't want the thing that Jesus is doing to us, and yet we know that we also need that one year. We need that one year. We need Jesus to step in as the vine dresser that says, yo, can I just have one more year? Can I just have one more year with her? Can I just have one more year with him? So let me fertilize it. Let me dig around it. Let me work it. You see, the cause of a repentant heart is the patient and steadfast love of Jesus Christ. He cares too much about us to leave us alone. He cares too much about us not to go to great lengths to get us to turn around. When David needed to repent, God sent Nathan. And when Jonah needed to repent, God sent a whale. And when Isaiah needed to repent, he sent him a vision. Christian, you are too precious to God for him not to allow the vine dresser to work on you just a little bit in order for you to bear fruit. 
It's that one more year. And non-Christian, you are too precious to God for him to allow you to not see eternity. And he will work on you too. See, as I conclude, and the band can come back up, I have three questions for us. Do you know Christ as your Savior? Or do you only know him as someone who you think can save? Have you repented of your sins? Or do you only vaguely know of the concept of repentance? Have you been forgiven or have you only heard of the forgiving power of Jesus? Y'all, there are leaders in this room and there are people, if you are not a believer, there are people around you that can read the Bible with you. There are people around you that can tell you about the goodness of Jesus Christ. There are people around you that can tell you about their stories. Sydney just did a phenomenal job of that this morning. But nobody can make you believe. Not one person can make you believe. <laughs> you have to take it upon yourself. Do you believe? Do you know Christ as Savior? Have you repented from your sins? Have you been forgiven? If you don't know Christ and if you've never repented of your sin, if you don't know if you are forgiven, y'all, there is still time. There's time. Do you know if the disciples thought that Jesus was going to come back in their lifetime? He didn't. And now here we are over 2,000 years later, and Jesus still hasn't returned. But we still have the promise that he will one day come back. And y'all, while there's still a delay, there will always be time. Why didn't he come back? Why hasn't he come back? He hasn't come back yet because of this. He's holding off and he's being patient. He's being merciful and he desires that the hard-headed and stubborn people like you and me come to a saving knowledge of who he is. The sacrificial death of Jesus in the